We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 6 this morning, if you want to turn in your Bibles there. But before we get to that passage, we're told that in America today, there are more than 8 million cases of anorexia. And it's no secret that our culture's emphasis on body image plays plays a huge role in that. We live in a culture that encourages us to be thin, right? To be fit, to look like Greek gods and goddesses. And at a time when we enjoy the most abundant food supply in the history of the world, the number of people who are voluntarily with this um, psychosis of anorexia starving themselves to death, continues to rise. You see, the irony for anorexics is that they've already mastered the thing they're working so hard to achieve. They're really good at losing weight and being thin. But they're really bad at knowing when to stop because for them, the destination has taken a backseat to the journey. They're so absorbed, and, and it's so sad. And I just want to beg you, if you're here this morning with this physical problem, please get help. Please see someone for help with that. But the anorexic is so absorbed in the effort to get thin that they no longer recognize when they are thin. And so on and on the cycle of destruction goes. Anorexia is a good image for our relationship to money as a culture, even within the church of Jesus Christ in America today. What in the world do you mean, Chad? As Andy Stanley puts it, we are so absorbed in the effort to get rich, we no longer recognize when we are rich. Whoa, preacher. (laughs) Man, that was dramatic. But there's something you need to know. The rest of this message is obviously not for me because I'm not rich. You You know nothing about my finances and, preacher, what you need to know is I'm not Rich. You know, the, the, the funny reality about our nation and everyone in this room is that nobody in America thinks they're rich, right? Think about it. What would it take for you, sir, for you, ma'am, to think of yourself as rich? Well, when asked that question in a recent Gallup poll, here's what people said. Those with a household income of 30000 they said 75000 I'd call myself rich. But then those that made 50000 they didn't say 75000 They said 100000 And I think of myself as beginning to be wealthy. The answer that most people gave to that question was 120000 And they said, if I made 120000 I don't know what the 20000 I don't know how it's magically different, but the 120000 if I had that, then I'd, I'd really be rich. But you know what you get when you ask the people that actually do make 120000 over 200,000. And so it goes, right? How much would it be for me to be rich? Well, more, like about twice as much as I'm making, right? Here's what I do, here's what I do know. If you earn $37,000 a year for your household income, 
I won't ask for a show of hands, but here's, here's let me just go ahead and tell you how that would look. Most of you would raise your hand, right? If your family makes $37,000 a year or more, you're in the top 4% of the wage earners. Listen to what I'm fixing to say in the world. Not in America, in the world. Y'all with me? The globe, the planet, you get me, you get me? All, the, all the continents, you're in the top 4% of wage earners. 96% of the world's poorer than you are. If you make $45,000 a year for your annual income and household income, you're in the top 1% of the world's earners. Did you have any leftovers this week? Do y'all know what I'm talking about? That's food that's left over after you eat. Another way to think about it, because we need to break that down. Like, 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 they've got a bad rap in America, don't they? Some of you don't like leftovers. I, I'm a fan. Had them, had them two or three times. Like, I mean, I, I, and I mean it. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I like them. I know some people don't like them. My wife doesn't care for leftovers. But here's the thing. We're talking about food that's left over from a meal because you had too much for your family to eat at one sitting. Have you ever remodeled part of your home? That's not repairing your home. There's, do you understand the difference? I know it's hard. Stay with me. You're smart people, though. You can, you, you can catch up to this. It's not re- repairing, fixing broken things in your home. It's remodeling where you go in and you tear out a perfectly good and functional part of your home to update it, to make it better, to make it nicer. Do you have a garage? What so many in the world would consider a home for your car, a private residence for your vehicle? Do you rent a storage unit? I can personally afford to pay $100 a month for space, for stuff that I either don't have room for in my house or need of, are you listening? Need of in my day-to-day life. Like I've got that much stuff. 10 by 15. 100 bucks a month, I pay to keep stuff. Do you get frustrated with bad cell phone coverage? I do in LJ, Georgia. I, I just about told you my carrier, but that would not be good. It's bad. But that's a rich people problem. They have trouble deciding on which place to go on vacation. Rich people problem. Did your laptop computers, you, you understand where I'm going with this? Like, there's computers that sit on desks, and there's laptops. Like, you can afford to have one that puts, you can put it in your lap. Like, in your recliner, you can sit back with it, right? Did your laptop computer crash? Rich people problem. How about that slow internet connection? How do you live? There's commercials about this, right? Rich people problem. Amazon doesn't have what you, you, you want. You mean they're out of stock? You got to be kidding me. I got to back order Amazon products. Rich people problem. You see, it's all a matter of perspective, isn't it? When we think in terms of the world, by the way, that's the most reasonable and logical way to think in terms of not just your little part of the world, but the whole thing, and ultimately in the light of God who made and sustains all things. When we think in terms of the world, with perhaps rare exception, almost all of us qualify for rich. Now, here's the quick aside. Let's just get this out of the way so you're not distracted, and I'm not wondering what you're thinking exactly, so let me just go ahead and deal with your thinking and, and just... I'm kind of like that, just plain. Okay, here we go. Before you get aggravated and say, here it comes, preacher's going to ask for money. 
Church got debt on the building. He's fixing to ask for money so they can get the debt paid off at the church. That's what this whole message is going to be about. Let's just, nope, not at all. Let me, let me, let me, let me, let me tell you how we're going to do this. I want, you to, I want God this morning to make you generous in the lives of people who have needs just as he himself is and has been with you and me. So let's do it this way. If God speaks to you this morning during this message, which I have prayed that he will, do whatever giving he leads you to do somewhere else. Sorry, Wes. Give whatever doing he leads you to do to this day somewhere else. Do it somewhere else. I'm serious. Or make it specific for one of our missionaries. Or make it specific for the International Learning Center that starts in September that will reach members of our community who need to hear the gospel but are separated through language barriers. You see, here's the deal. God will take care of our obligations that we have as a church and West Finance Committee, leadership, churches in general. He'll do that as we focus and keep focusing on the Great Commission and the Great Commandment, and we never compromise our missions giving for the sake of putting extra money on the principle of our loan, which, by the way, we've never done up to this present moment. So, now that you understand you're all rich and that I'm not asking you to give anything to this church, Will you take just a second to be thankful before we even start for how wealthy you are? This sermon could be over before it began. It's not. We continue our study this morning of 1 Timothy. We've been looking at this letter under the heading of gospel-shaped living for Jesus' gospel gathering. We are owned by the one who bought us on the cross, Jesus. He paid the price for our sins and he purchased us for us redemption. We are Jesus' gospel gathering and we gather around the gospel that we might go with the gospel. But Paul talks to Timothy as the pastor of the church in Ephesus and says, I, I want to tell you what what the, the gospel gathering's life ought to look like. I want to describe for you in this letter what gospel-shaped living for Jesus' gospel gathering will look like. And this morning, specifically from 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 and 19, I want to talk to you about how to be really rich. The take-home truth for today is this. A Jesus follower's daily use of money should aim at eternal wealth that results from a life of generous sharing. If you boil these three verses we're fixing to look at down, that's the truth that I want you to get. A, a Jesus follower's daily use of money should be aimed at eternal wealth that results from a life of generous sharing. The way you get a life of eternal wealth is to live every day generously sharing the money you have. Now, is that practical? Can you do something with that? Does that give you some how-tos and some steps to take, some actual things you can do? Absolutely, and it's going to get more practical for it's over, so hang on. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. Let's just stand for the reading of God's Word. Paul says, as for the rich in this present age, and by the way, everybody clear, everybody raise your hands. One, at least one, you don't have to raise both because you look charismatic and that'll freak you out. Yeah, <clears throat> so just one. You're rich. He's talking to you, okay? As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, 
to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Do you really want to live? Do you really want to live? I'll ask it one more time and you answer in English loudly. Do you really want to live? Amen. Then please be seated and pay attention as we continue. You see, a Jesus follower's daily use of money should aim at eternal wealth that results from a life of generous sharing. There are two primary commands, both found in verse 17 here in this text. The, the, verse 17 says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them. Here's the two, here come the two commands. Charge them, Timothy. There's actually three, but I'm, I'll, I'll show you how the, this first one relates to the other two in a minute. Charge them, Timothy, not to be haughty, nor command, main command number one, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. That's the main, first main command. But secondly, to set their hope is understood on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. This verse reveals to us what J.D. Greer said of this passage. The number one competitor for our souls in the Bible is money. I'm not making that up. It's, It's real. Look it up. Study it. Two main commands. Don't hope in money. Set your hope in God. First of all, let's break it down. Don't hope in money. Pragmatically, Paul says, don't hope... Don't set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Paul first argues pragmatically. Don't set your hopes on riches because they are, they're they're not reliable. They're uncertainty. They're uncertain. Psalm 23 verse 5 says this, cast but a glance at riches. I'm sorry, Proverbs 23 verse 5. Proverbs 23 verse 5. Cast but a glance at riches and they are gone. For they will surely spout, sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. Can I ask for a show of hands? Have any of you ever seen money fly away from you as soon as it flew to you? Yeah. That's, that's, that's real. Oh, it can fly in real pretty. Hit that bank account, make you feel good <laughs> in the flesh. And it can be gone just like that. We were hit hard in this area by the recession of 2008, were we not? And it just flew away. Don't hope in money, pragmatically even, because of the uncertainty of riches, but rather hope in God. And again, he gives us pragmatic reason who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Don't hope in riches. They're uncertain. They fly away. Hope in God, remembering that God is the one who supplies us, provides us richly with everything to enjoy. Remembering that God is the sovereign source of all that you have gotten and possess at this moment. Do you really, do, do you really believe that? No matter how hard you've worked and no matter how long you've worked, do you really and truly believe that what you have is a gift from God, given to you by God, provided for you by God? Well, you should because of verses like Acts 17, verse 28, where Paul says, for in him we live and move and have our being. The fact that I can do what I do to earn money, the fact that you can work hard to make a living, the fact that you got the brain that got you that job that gives you the success you have is because in him you live, number one. In him you move, that means you get up and go to work. And in him you have your being, in him you do what you do. 
Romans 11 verse 36 says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. Your whole life is from him. Your whole life, it's through him. The success of your company, the success of your career, it's, it's through him. And don't miss the last part, it's to him. To him, Paul says, be glory a forever. Amen. Don't set your hope on money, but on God. Isn't all of this simply what Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 24, when he said, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. We talked about this in the whole, in, in the, in the whole of the message last week when we talked about uh, running from the love of, from, from money love and running to God gain. If you weren't here last Sunday, go back and catch that message and it'll make more sense the one day. We can't repeat it here today. Jesus simply says, though, and it's so easy to understand, isn't it? You cannot serve God and money. How do you know if you're putting your hope in the money or in God? You see, this is an issue of idolatry we learned last week. Covetousness, which is idolatry, Paul says in one place. So it's a big deal. So differently said, do you worship money or do you worship God? How you relate to your money. This is how you know whether you're putting your hope in money or in God. How you relate to your money, what you do with your money, reveals whether you're hoping in money or hoping in God. And that's why Paul wants us so clearly, so, so urgently to understand very clearly that a Jesus follower's daily use of money should aim at eternal wealth that results from a life of generous giving. Because when you see that in a life, you know the person worships the risen Savior, not the world and all its money. But tragically, this is not the case for so many of us. Dare I say, all of us, at least on occasion. The rest of these three verses will help us understand and change our own hearts. Look with me in verse 17 again at what hope in money looks like. How do you know if you're hoping in money? Well, just take a look at verse 17. Ask for the rich in the present age. Charge them. We looked at the, at the focus on the last part of the verse earlier. Not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. But right before that, he says, charge them not to be haughty. How does how the two go together? Do you like to pull up to work in that new vehicle at just the right time when most of your coworkers are also walking in and walking, showing up and walking in? Or, on the converse, are you embarrassed to get to work on time because if you're there when everybody else pulls in, they'll see that you drive that clunker that's always in the shop? Either way, then you might be setting your hope on money. Do you feel better wearing that brand name shirt that you bought yesterday at the mall? Or conversely, are you embarrassed because of your outfit that came from the thrift store? Then you might be hoping in money. Does the size of your 401k tuck you in tight when you lay down to go to sleep at night? Or conversely, do you worry when you lay down to go to sleep at night because you have virtually nothing saved for retirement? What does it look like to hope in money? This is what it looks like to hope in money. 
Proverbs 10 verses, eight, uh, excuse me, Proverbs 18 verses 10 and 11. The writer of Proverbs says this. He tells us the truth of life first in verse 10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Verse 11 is a contrast. A rich man? A rich man's wealth is his strong city. Listen. And like a high wall in his imagination. Can I ask you something? Do do we make sure we're on the same page? Is all the stuff in your imagination real? This is yes, is no. No. As kids, we did what? We pretended. And as adults, guess what we do? We pretend. If your 401k tucks you in bed tight at night and makes you feel comfortable as you go to sleep, you are playing pretend in this world. Just like a little kid. You're living in an imaginary world. You see, the proverb writer says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous man runs to that, and that's real safety. The rich man thinks his fortified city is his money. He thinks that's the high wall that will protect him from all that will come at him in life. But he's just playing pretend, like a little kid. All this is why Jesus said in Matthew 19, verse 24, again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And by the way, you've heard this stuff that there's some supposed gate that was tight for a camel to pass. It's not, there's no evidence of that. He meant what he said. (laughs) You ever tried to thread a needle with a piece of thread? Well, you'll get that thread through a whole lot sooner than a rich man will ever get through the eye of that needle. And Jesus said, that's about the chances that a rich man's got of getting into the kingdom. Let me, let me, let me, let me just make this clear. That ought to make every American Christian tremble. Every professing Jesus following America, every time we hear those words from the mouth of our Lord, we ought to shake. Because we are rich. Top 4% of the world. And it ought to cause us to examine ourselves to see, are we hoping in money? Because here's the deal. You are hoping in money. I am hoping in money way more than I want to admit. Way more than I even may realize. In Mark 4, verse 18, Jesus, you'll remember, he had told the parable of the, uh, of, of the seed and the, and the different kinds of soils. And the sower sowed and, and, the, and the seed fell on different kinds of soils. And in verse 18, he gets to his description, his explanation of one particular kind of soil. And he said, others are the ones sown among the thorns. What's the thorns all about in that, in that, in that parable? They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. You too can be fooled. And the desire for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. There are people who have heard the gospel. It started to grow, but money killed their soul. Killed the gospel in their soul. Stopped the continuing work and fruitfulness of the Spirit of God. It it, it short-circuited the whole deal. They never came to know Christ. Because they love money more than they love Jesus. Stuff was worth more than God. Andy Stanley, in his great book, by the way, 
how, how to be rich. If you've never read that, I'd encourage it. Probably the best single brief resource on biblical stewardship and, and, and what it means to be generous that I've ever seen. In his book, he said, Greed is the assumption that it is all for my consumption. That's what greed is. And yet, greed is normal. Greed is the American way of life. Greed is how we function so many times. Of course, if I earned it, it's for me. Right? That's logical, isn't it? Y'all tracking? Wrong. Right in the world, wrong in the church. Right in the world, wrong in the kingdom of God. And you see, that kind of greed grows out of the arrogance that comes when we are hoping in money. Either currently possessed or currently coveted and being pursued. Either way, it's the love of money. Typically, no matter our level of income or wealth, perhaps most of us are caught in what I, uh, what I again, Stanley calls the cycle of the consumption assumption. Here's kind of how it flows in the next few slides. It starts where we spend more than we make, Right? We spend more than we make. I mean, is that not the American way of life? Hello? Y'all are out this thinking it real practical. If you'll pay attention, if you'll just deal with this, it'll help you before it's over. So don't, don't leave me, okay? We spend more than we make. What's the fix to that? Self-control, which we as Americans hugely lack. Unless it comes to making more money so we can spend more than we make. And then we're very disciplined. We spend more than we make. That leads to consumer debt, Right? Do the math. Everybody in this room can handle this. If you spend more than you make, you've got to borrow money to make up the difference. Are you with me? If you make 50 but spend 100, then you've got to borrow 50 to pay the bill for the 100. So consumer debt is rampant and crazy in our world and in our lives so that we can consume more. What's the, what's the solution to consumer debt? Contentment. Which, in, which will backfeed into that spending more than we make. We'll quit borrowing more to spend more because we will be living within our means. It's amazing how that actually can work. But consumer debt then leads to no margin for future consumption. We're in trouble because there's no buffer in our lives. We're, we're spending more than we make. We're borrowing for that difference, and all of a sudden, at the end of the day, we can't, we're borrowed out. We can't even borrow anymore, and we don't have any margin, which means we can't help people because we've chained ourselves down financially to the place that literally we cannot, without making some drastic changes, we cannot, well, there's nothing free to hand to someone else who needs help. And all of this exists in a cloud of worry about future consumption, hoping that somehow we'll be able to borrow enough next month to, to pay the bills that we shouldn't have incurred this month. Are you with me? And we worry. And you see, it's discipline, but ultimately, it's trust in God that fixes all this. We'll talk more about this in a minute. This is what it looks like when you're hoping in money. And our culture and many in the church are caught in this cycle of the consumption, uh, the consumption assumption, and they cannot get out. Some of you here are in that place today. You don't have to stay there. I'm going to show you a road out before we leave here today. That's what hoping in money looks like. 
how about hoping in God? Let's get to the good stuff. What does hope in God look like? Verse 18. Don't hope in the uncertainty of riches, but set your hopes on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to, here's what the rich are to do, and we're all rich. They're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous if you boil it all down. And ready to share. What does it mean to do good? What does it mean to be rich in good works? What does it mean to be ready to share? It means to be generous. Thus storing up for treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. You said you wanted to really live. You still want to really live at this point in the message? Then pay close attention. It's all about hoping in God. And proving your hope in God by being generous in life. Two basic actions that you take with money when you're hoping in God. If you're hoping in God, these are the two actions you'll take. Number one, you'll be thankful for God's financial and material provision in our lives. Thankfulness, gratitude will characterize your heart, your spirit, your attitude. It's what he means when he says he's, he's the one who provides all things for us, richly provides all things for us to enjoy. Verse 17. You see, it's not wrong to have money. If you're here today and you're, you're, you're actually one that everybody in the room would call rich, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with having money. God determines who does and who doesn't have. And God has built into our world some cause and effect relationships that go with working hard and being compensated for our, for our, for our labors, even as he, as we said earlier, enables and sustains our efforts. So we should, first and foremost, be thankful for God's financial and material provision in our lives. Gratitude is the first way we enjoy all that God has given us. And it's okay to enjoy what God has given you. It's not a bad thing. If I have the money, everything else is taken care of, including my generosity to others. If I have the money to take my wife out to a nice dinner at Longhorn, there's nothing wrong with that. So when you see us walk in there, don't be judging. I'll get my Bible out. God's not a cosmic killjoy. He, he created... I mean, just, just take a look out the window right now. This is, this is a time I'm giving you. Look, look, look out either window, whichever one you're close to. Look out. Isn't that beautiful? The sun's shining. The grass is green. Where's, where's, where's Mike Williams? Mike Williams said, look, look what was in my yard this morning. I thought he meant a turkey because he knows I'm kind of, a, kind of crazy about wild turkeys. And he has some that pass through his yard. He just lives right down here, about not even a quarter of a mile from here. And he pulls his camera, uh, his phone out, and he, and he shows me a picture. And there's these flowers, random. Like, I don't know, nobody knows what they are. So, Miss, where's Miss Winnie? Miss Winnie here today? No. Miss Winnie Keener, you might know too. I don't know. There's, somebody's got to look at these pictures. There's this flower. It's on this stalk about this tall, and it's just right in the middle of the grass. just popped up. I mean, God, God makes flowers shoot up in Mike Williams' yard because he wants us to enjoy life. He's a good God. I'll be trucking through the woods about 6.30 in the morning, just me hiking, sweating, getting it all out, doing my exercise thing, me and the Lord talking. And I'll just look down there, there'll just be these little flowers on the ground, purple, in the middle of the woods. Who'd he put them there for? Me. Ha! You know, my wife, she, she brings me flowers sometimes. I bring her flowers sometimes. But God brings me flowers about every morning this time of year. Just puts them out there so me and the deer can see them. As far as I know, they don't eat them. 
I don't know, because they, they, they stay there. I see deer come by and flowers still there the next day. He's a good God, y'all. But the second way that we show our hope in God is we be generous to others and share what God has given us. This is what it means to practically do good, be rich in good works, as the text says. This is how it looks if we are storing up treasure for ourselves as a good foundation for the future. This is what it looks like if we're really taking hold of that, which is truly life. We are not just grateful, we are generous to others, and we share what God's given us. This is the point in the message you look at me and say, okay, I'm ready. I've got my pencil out. I see some of you, you're taking notes. And and here's what you want me to answer. What's the percentage, preacher? Let's just settle it. Let's Let's just break it down, get it right down to it. If you'll just tell me, then we'll do our best to calculate, shoot for that, whatever, and then we'll be good, and then we can just quit talking about this. I don't believe there is. A New Testament percentage formula for your giving. Kyle, Sunday school class this morning, right? There were some percentages in the Old Covenant, by the way. You live under the New Covenant. How many times have you ever heard me talk about tithing? Won't. Not going to happen. Why? Because I don't think 10% is grace giving. I don't think 10% is New Covenant giving. Well, preachers, does that mean you think it's more? Well, probably, based on the fact that you're all rich Americans, but, but I'm not giving you a percentage. For some, it may be less based on where you are. You may be in a place of... And there is poverty in our nation. Please don't misunderstand. Don't think I don't know that. When I was six kids in our country face a, a food issue, not enough of it. But I don't believe there's a New Testament percentage formula for your giving. I think the cross of Jesus Christ should be the filter for how you give. How's that? How, how, you like that? Look at the cross. Look at it hard. Think about it. Study the gospel, and then you figure out what you ought to give. How did he give to you? Remember, we're looking at the cross. How did he give to you? sacrificially, inconveniently, and joyfully because of his heart, full of love for you. That's how he gave to you. Jesus said, I didn't, nobody took my life from me. I laid it down for you. John 15, verse 12, Jesus says, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. By the way, talking about being generous with other people, that's just a practical way of talking about loving. Amen? Very practical. Some of you think too practical. Let's just do the general love one another thing and leave it at that. Nope. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. How did Jesus love you? He laid down his life for you. How are you to love others? How generous are you to be with people? Look at the cross. J.D. Greer says this, and I think he's spot on. The mark that you've experienced the gospel is that you possess a generosity of spirit. The love of God for you produces in you a love for others. And here's the deal. If you don't see that mark, if others can't look at you and see that mark, you need to question whether you've experienced Christ. Because a generous Savior produces generous followers. And I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about all of your life, your heart of love. 
Hebrews 12, verse 2, Jesus, speaking of Jesus, uh, the author there says that we're to run this race that we're, we're about, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. How did he give to you? That's how he gave. Despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He did it for joy. Joy in your salvation and in mine. Joy in his glory that would come from our salvation. Be generous to others and share what God has given you. 1 John 3, 16 to 18 puts it this way. By this we know love that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. That's how we define love. Okay? There's a lot about love out there. It's real simple. You don't know, how, you don't know what love is? Look to the cross. That's what love is. By the way, that's a great way for you to witness. Just start a talk, a talk with somebody at work about love. You know, the Bible tells us that, 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 you know what love is? Love is that he laid his life down for us. I mean, you can be to the cross just like that. That was free. Thank you. You're welcome. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods, John just goes straight for the juggler here, and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. How? How does God's love abide in him? The implication is it don't. You all right? You got the stuff, that person needs it, you see that he needs it, you don't give it to him. How can you say you love God? Quit talking like that, John says. Stop it. You don't love God. You have not experienced the grace of Jesus. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. 1 John 3, verse 18. Okay, Chad. Okay, I got it. I want to live like this, but I literally, I'm telling you, preacher, I literally cannot. Because I'm one of the ones you talked about a few minutes ago that, that are caught in the chains of the cycle of the consumption assumption. I cannot. There's no margin in my life. Well, like I said a while ago, at the end of the cycle... The key to breaking free from this cycle is trusting God, hoping in God instead of money. Will you get there? Now, I'll go ahead and tell you, there's some practical things I'm fixing to give you. There's steps you can take that actually begin to move your life in a different direction. But it doesn't start with these steps. It starts with your heart. Trusting in God and not in money. Let's say you've taken the key. That is trusting God, not money. What are some practical steps that you can take that will get you free from the chains of greed? Uh, we, we do a class here at least once a year. I'll tell you this, if there was half a dozen of you said you want to do another one, we'd, we'd, start it, we'd start it in about a month. Financial Peace University. In that class, you'll learn some of the things that we've been talking about. We talked about when we talked about the cycle a while ago. You'll learn self-control and discipline. You'll learn how to do a zero-based budget. Is this, by the way, is this practical? Can the preacher get any more practical for you? A zero-based budget. You want to get free from the love of money, from, from, from hoping in money? You want to really hope in God? Then live on a zero-based budget. What does that mean, preacher? That means every dollar that comes in, it's got a name, goes somewhere at the end of the month. There's a zero at the bottom of your budget. It, it balances. Our government has no idea how to balance a budget. But I'm here to tell you, under God, you can balance a budget. 
By the way, in that budget, as we go through Financial Peace University, line item number one is giving to the Lord. But preacher, I don't have it to give. Yes, you do. You just ain't. You think you don't, but you can. You honor God with your first fruits and your creditors later, it'll all work out. You can, you can work a plan. Second practical thing is contentment. You'll learn that also in Financial Peace University, and you'll be strongly encouraged to never take any more debt. None, none except a mortgage. And then you'll be encouraged to pay it off early. No more debt, no more debt. Is that American? No. Thank God in heaven. It's not American, but it is biblical. It is gospel. It is how you trust God and not money. And some of you who've been through that class, you'll remember. At some point in the class, we offer you the, the opportunity to have a plastectomy. Some of you are beginning to catch on plastic. We cut up credit cards. Really? Yeah. If you cut them up, they don't work. <laughs> it's novel, isn't it? If six of you will sign up, if you'll just see me, if you'll just text me, want to do that class. If six of you do it, we'll start one in August. How about that? I'll figure it out. That's how committed I am. I'm serious. This, I, I am committed to helping you be free financially so that you cannot, so that you, that, that you never have to, but so that you can more easily not trust in God, hope in, uh, trust in money, but rather hope and trust in God. But you've got to get free from your own bondage that you put yourself in. You've practically got to break the chains that you've wrapped yourself in if you ever want to get free. And if you ever want to get to a place in life where you actually have a part of your budget that's not your normal giving, it's actually generosity. Like there's money there for that. Like you planned that. Like you have a, an envelope with cash where when needs come that you don't know are ever going to come along, you're ready and you can give to that. What a Christ-like way to live. Amen? You can do it. A room full of wealthy people, top four givers, percent of givers in the world, you guys can live differently. Andy Stanley puts it this way, it's not what you have, it's what you do with what you have. Do you trust God enough to break the chains you've allowed your money to enslave you with and take back control of where your money goes, what it does, as you hope only in God? A final question, how does how you live compare to how you give? It's telling. Jesus followers, a Jesus follower's daily use of money should aim at eternal wealth that results from a life of generous giving. Because you see, folks, that's what it means to be really rich. Let's pray together.